30 years ago, I remember my very, very liberal high school English teacher saying, I disagree with what you're saying, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. That's what liberals used to say. And now we've got a broad spectrum of people who no longer feel that way. We are losing people, especially in the younger generation. They don't know what free speech is and couldn't begin to, to write a paragraph on why it's necessary to stay safe and protect us from harm. But I have at least one free speech warrior here on the show today to lay it out for us. His name is Greg Lukianoff. He is the author of The Canceling of the American Mind. The Canceling of the American Mind, which might be reminiscent of the last time he was on the show. We discussed his other book, The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. That was 2018. Uh, Before that, he wrote Freedom from Speech and Unlearning Liberty, Campus Censorship and the End of American Debate. Welcome back to the show, Greg Lukianoff. Thanks for having me, Jackie. Great to have you. I, I so enjoy your books, and I hope people will remember, or this should be reminiscent of um, an older book from, from uh, last century, The Closing of the American Mind Yes, by Alan Bloom, um, which kind of documented that moment in history where people jumped into postmodernism, decided all truth is relative. There's my truth. There's your truth. You know, I, I guess you can't call anyone a liar if you don't believe in truth. Um, <laughs> yes. Apparently. And so your book, I think books now plural, are meant to be as foundational to what is happening culturally in this moment in this country, which up until recently has been a bastion of free speech. So, Greg, tell us about the canceling of the American mind. What do we learn in this book? Well, um, you know, I'm the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, which turns 25 this year. Uh, And we defend free speech all over the country, um, but we have a particular focus in higher education. And I was working on a follow-up to Coddling of the American Mind, my 2018 book with Jonathan Haidt. um, And I was co-authoring it with this absolutely brilliant uh, now 23-year-old named Ricky Schlott. Wow. Um, and uh, and while we were getting ready to write a follow-up to coddling, which was much more about mental health and, and a lot of these other problems we're seeing on campus, I realized that there are still people out there who are trying to claim that cancel culture was a hoax, that it never happened, that it's like a conspiracy theory. Um, and I was like, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> I am sitting on a mountain of data right. um, and not just arguing that it happened. And of course, everyone knows it happened, um, who, who's at least being intellectually honest. But to just prove that it happened and that it's not just something that happened, it's something that's on a historic scale and it undermines our ability to trust each other. It definitely destroys our ability to trust experts. Um, And it's something that we're going to be studying in 100 years. Right. Like this moment in time, I think, is so um, pivotal because, as you say Mm -hmm. in your book, you know, cancel culture is really only about a decade old, really, what we call cancel culture. Um, There were always professors who would shame you at a university or at a law school for saying things they didn't like, uh, or even maybe uh, penalize your grades. 
So it was that there was a type of like a infant um, embryonic cancel culture that I certainly remember from college oh, yeah. and law school. And I'm not that old, but I haven't been there in a couple of decades, probably. Um, <laughs> but what you're talking about is a brand new level, right? This is yeah. like, what, how would you define cancel culture? Our definition of cancel culture is the uptick of people losing their jobs, getting deplatformed, expelled for speech that would be protected under First Amendment standards um, that began around 2014 and really accelerated around 2017. Yeah. So like back when I remember Jerry Seinfeld saying, I'm not going to do any more shows on college campuses. And that was what everyone called the canary in the coal mine. You would know this much better than me. Apparently, historically, when people lose their free speech rights, it's the comedians that get hit, um, I guess, kind of early, right? Because they're the ones who almost, they're, they're like a fifth estate poking fun at the regime, um, yeah. right? So it, what is the history of that? Did this happen like in the Soviet Union um, or other places? Like where, where does that example come from historically? Oh, 100%. Yeah, you go after the comedians first. Uh, and, and, you know, like, I'm my grandfather fought the Bolsheviks. I lived in the Czech Republic after the wall fell. Like, so, yeah, I mean, like, comedians are considered to be among some of the most dangerous people to an authoritarian state. And to, to brag a little bit, Jackie, um, <laughs> we actually did a documentary called Can We Take a Joke um, about the threats to free speech coming from cancel culture, which didn't, that name wasn't even really coined yet, uh, that came out in 2015. And the only problem was we were too ahead of the curve. We got Adam Carolla in it. We got Penn Jillette in it. We got Gilbert Gottfried. We got a lot of like great comedians, but it was not on people's radar yet. But definitely your your, um, uh, your audience should go check it out because it was even before Chris Rock and Jerry Seinfeld. It actually came out right around the time Chris Rock and Jerry Seinfeld were saying, I don't like playing campuses anymore because I can't use my good material because they're too <laughs> sensitive. Right. Okay. So is that it? What? Can we take a joke dot com? Um, we yeah, can find it? you can you can find it on Amazon. You can find it, you know, uh, um, you can find it on uh, on Apple uh, TV. Like it, it's all over the place now. Okay, okay, I'm I'm going to check that out because you know that's uh, people might not want to hear about the fine contours of First Amendment precedent, uh, you know, and, and regulation, but they definitely can understand. Wait a minute, I can't hear Jerry Seinfeld in in public venues anymore. Just yeah. because other people, you know, what if, if someone's offended? I mean, what was it? What does it take? Does it take? Um, that's another great question. How many people have to be offended before this anti-democratic norm of shaming them or screaming them down works? Right. It's just a teeny yeah. tiny fragment of the group that can cause disruption and end speech. Like how many people well, have to be committed to killing speech to kill it? On campus, you know, it just requires people that the administrators like yeah, <laughs> in order right. to get speech canceled. And so it doesn't have to be a large number of, of anti-free speech activists. But unfortunately, campuses are producing. And we talk a lot about this in Canceling of the American Mind, about the anti-free speech movement, which has been, you know, like it really started right after the free speech movement. You know, free speech movement, Berkeley, 1964, anti-free speech movement, University of San Diego, 1965. And it's been uh, progressing, you know, slowly at first on campuses for a long time. But the last 10 years in particular, um, it's been accelerating. Right. So I, I, we've only got like two minutes left in this segment. 
Um, but can you tell me, how did this happen? Because I don't believe it's organic. I think it yeah. is manufactured and funded. Who caused this? You know, it definitely is the case that there was a very intentional effort to turn the left on freedom of speech. Now, and I say the left as opposed to liberals, um, uh, partially because it was people like Herbert Marcuse, like a recover, like a sort of modified Marxist and a lot of other Marxist thinkers, including people like Richard Delgado, um, who uh, had been advocating for uh, bucking the trend that was then kind of on the liberal left, that free speech was kind of central to, to their identity, to um, change that. Uh, because, you know, if you really want to have your perfect uh, authoritarian society, free speech is a problem for you. Right. So this is something that, that has been developing for a long time. And, it, and in the 80s, they passed speech codes, uh, you know, for the first time. Um, but the, uh, but at least the public and, and honestly, like most liberals and conservatives thought like speech codes had no place on campus. Um, but unfortunately, as the illiberal left replaces the more liberal leaning left, we're in a situation in which there's very few people fighting back against censorship on campus. And then it spreads out to the whole rest of the country as it's doing right now. I'm talking with Greg Lukianoff, and he is the author of The Canceling of the American Mind, not to be confused with the coddling of the American mind, which is the book that he talked about um, on the show. I guess it's been, gosh, a few years ago now, because that's dated back yeah. to 2018. It's been a while. Um, and so uh, Greg, the author, used to be with the ACLU. Uh, came very much from what, what used to be the old style of liberal, at least <laughs> older to those of us who are over 40, uh, people who actually believed in free speech. And and in fact, uh, liberal Democrats were the bastion, perhaps, of free speech for a time. And how things change. It seems like they always change. So, Greg, you have a, a chapter in the book called The Gaslighting of the American Mind. Describe yeah. what we learned in that chapter. Yeah, the gaslighting of the American mind. So gaslighting, um, I'm sure most of your listeners know what it means, but it means to try to make someone think that they're crazy. Um, to, 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 from a movie called Gaslight from 1944. And in this case, it is about how um, a big chunk of social media, particularly left-leaning social media, and people like Keith Oberman and other establishment figures freaked out um, over the course of two weeks when the New York Times published a piece by a former fire intern, Emma Camp, saying that um, campuses are hard to have serious discussions these days, which should not be controversial. It's in all the polling. And then it was even worse when the New York Times actually published something saying that actually it turns out that if you honestly look at the polling, cancel culture is real and serious. And here's the thing. That's absolutely true. If you look at the polling, you can't deny that cancel culture is real and people are scared of it, whether they're black, white, liberal or conservative. And people flipped out on Twitter. It was amazing. So like saying like, this is if I was still at the New York Times or Alan Davidson, I think his name was, I'd, I'd quit today. Jeff Jacoby, you know, talked about um, insulted them. Keith Overman, you know, like all of these people were, were saying things like this, uh, this. This obviously isn't true. And it's uh, um, and it's like, no, guys, like basically you are the tiny uh, quadrant of the public that not even a quadrant, like two one percent of the population who claims that this isn't even happening. Everyone else knows this is happening, um, but you want them to keep lying about it. Right. Right. And 
you know, and that that leads right into sort of the 1984 Orwellian idea that yep. people have to go along and pretend like and everyone and pretend like they believe things that are not true. Yep. And it sure feels like that right now. At a minimum, you you can think what you want as long as you don't speak it. Otherwise, yep. swift consequences will rain down. Um, and this is just a hallmark signature trait of um, of totalitarian states. So, um, let's see, I've got a little bit of time. You you list here case study psychotherapy. Tell me why you've zoned yeah. in on psychotherapy. This really scares me. The, uh, uh, um, the, um, this is the, the situation that I've seen from people that I, I know who are actually getting their PhDs in clinical psychology is that uh, students are freaking out about the possibility of having to uh, be therapists for people who might vote for Trump or might be Republicans. And of course, the answer to that is you treat whoever comes into your office and you try to help them. You don't disown your own patient because you don't like their politics. That's, ins- yeah. that's nuts. Yeah. And, they're, and they're, they're actually, in some cases, these young therapists are being taught to intervene in the therapy relationship to, quote unquote, correct incorrect or what they would deem to be incorrect political viewpoints. And it's like, no, that's totalitarian. That is going into a realm where you have no business telling people what they must or should think um, when you're trying to help them deal with anxiety and depression. Well, and, you know, it's it's been it's been a while now that I have lost trust in that discipline. Um, And and this just further confirms, I mean, yeah, maybe these Republicans are better off without their help, right? If, if a person seriously has to ask that question, what do yeah. I do? If someone asks for help and they don't agree with me on every single issue, therefore, I don't, you know, I refuse them. It's If they're even asking the question, they yeah. probably don't need to be helping anyone. They need help themselves. Um, okay, you have a, a chapter about, this is so good, raising kids who are not cancelers this is so important because greg i see generationally the the where we're losing this battle i see it you can you can see you know the parents are over a certain age and we expect that in a room of people where there's more than more than one there won't be agreement all the time it's normal it's just life it's the way it is in a free country but the kids don't are, are raised on something different from the school and for yeah. whatever reason greg i don't understand this part the parents don't jump in there to yeah. pass on their own culture their own their own beliefs and I, i'm not sure why that is i have some theories one literally the kids spend more time with the schools than with the parents so because yeah. the state mandates it so they've lost their rapport They've lost the relationship or they've lost the trust. I, I don't know. Or maybe the, um, you know, the parents feel um, they don't have the moral authority. If maybe they too are cancelers, uh, you know, ad hoc or, or uh, anyone try to say, yeah, ad hoc. Um, what do you think? How, how do you correct this? How do you raise kids that are not cancelers? Not part of the problem. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, I mean, a lot of it comes from sort of deprogramming stuff that comes out of education schools. And I want to be clear, a lot of people who are educators in K through 12, they're good people with good hearts. But they go to education schools, which are routinely the, the, as the lowest viewpoint diversity. They're the most politically monolithic. They have some of the worst ideas come out of them um, in, ter- in terms of like everything from philosophy to morality. Um, and you end up in a situation where they're being taught more or less that people who agree with us, you know, in this overwhelmingly left-leaning profession are good uh, and must be protected, whereas people who don't are evil, regressive racists and must be fought and canceled, et cetera. And a lot of parents who could be deprogramming this stuff, one, in some cases, agree. <laughs> yeah, that. right. right. Um, which is the most one of the most horrible. And, and the ones who aren't are afraid to because... I have a, a six and an eight year old and my, my eight year old um, is weirdly smart, but he's also about as good at judging people as I was at his age. <laughs> right. So we're always kind of scared. Like sometimes he's going to say something completely honest that's going to get us involved with <laughs> the principal. At some right. <laughs> right. Well, OK, so so what are your practical tips? I've got like one minute left. If you're a parent of a child that, you know, it probably starts very young. Um, It's being programmed to be a canceler. How do you instill in them without without an argument, without, you know, without raising suspicions um, that, look, tolerating other viewpoints is the decent, humane, American and safe approach? Yeah. Well, there's, there, there's so many different ways to do it. We talk about teaching them the, the golden rule, you know, as yeah. a really basic one. But even just learning to disagree with your spouse in front of your in, in front of your kids in a right. constructive way. Right. Have dinner with them. Yeah. Ask them what they think about stuff. Disagree with them. Challenge them to disagree with you. All of these habits have to be taught. Right. Right. Well, I'll tell you, um, you know, I, I once was dating a guy uh, back when I was single and he had an adult daughter. And I, I don't even remember what I said. And she said, well, you can't say that in this family. I'm like, what do you mean? Oh. She's like, well, not everyone agrees with you. And I said, well, I'm sure that's true, but that's just true all the time, everywhere, in all places, you know. And I said, yeah. yeah. And I had to explain, like, literally no one ever had framed for this young woman. This is an adult. Like, oh, this is normal. This is how adults are. If, if two people agree all the time, one of them isn't thinking. Right. So yeah. it's, it, does, it doesn't jeopardize friendships, relationships, marriages, business relationships. If we all don't agree on everything all the time. In fact, nothing would yeah. function if that were the that were the policy. Right. So Agreed. but no one's done that thinking for them. No one's framed it for them like that. And uh, no, you're right. It's being the example is the best teacher uh in your own your own household absolutely okay talking with greg lukianoff again get his book the canceling of the american mind and if you did not get uh the coddling of the american mind i love that title you really (laughs) should uh because you can learn a lot from greg again he came from a former dictatorship actually historically his, his family did uh, and uh, and then work for the ACLU. Sometimes people say I don't have diverse viewpoints and <laughs> and uh, liberals and leftists and environmentalists and former liberals. 
on the show that's totally false. Um, I just don't have them label themselves all the time. But I think it has a lot of credibility, Greg, that you came from the ACLU and this is your position. You pushed off on your own uh, to do your own thing. And um, this is of great value. So wonderful contribution you have made to the American experiment uh, in keeping this republic alive, hopefully a few more years. And so (laughs) really appreciate what you're doing, Greg. Take care, Jackie. Thank you. You too.